Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafund.com to join the community. Today is August the 7th, 2022, and my guest is Trey Goth. Trey is the CMO and Chief of Staff of Prospera, a startup city in Honduras. This is a special episode. Trey and I will have a free-flowing discussion about the book, The Network State by Balaji Srinivasan. If there's such an industry as network states, network societies, or startup cities, Trey is one of the most important executives in the So it's very great to have you, Trey. I appreciate it, Nicholas. I've been uh, looking forward to doing this. Me too. So this book is highly relevant for any tech entrepreneur. Balaji Srinivasan is the former CTO of Coinbase. He a former partner of A16Z and one of the leading thinkers in crypto and blockchain. Right, so his thoughts are very relevant for the future of technology and governance. Rock, will rock. We will discuss its key insights. We will discuss, uh, we'll bring our opinion about it in. We will discuss what we like about it. We will discuss its flaws, again, from one of the most important voices in that industry. Right, before we go into the book, Trey, is there anything you'd like listeners to know about you? Sure. Um, I have a lot of potential answers to that question. I think the most important one would probably be, and hopefully you can attest to this too, don't believe everything you hear about the deep south in the United States. I am a, I am a product of this region. Um, I'm working with, uh, with Prospera, also working in the, another startup, uh, another tech startup as well, um, and have uh, traveled a bit and um, don't have the as strong of a southern accent. So I think what I want people to know about me is primarily that Although you might think someone is from a backwards area, backwards region, that anyone from anywhere in the world can do anything. Not to say I have done a lot per se, but relative to the perceptions of the South. I want to stand as an example that stereotypes are not always true. Love it. Yeah, I really enjoyed being here in Birmingham. with you. Trey, what and why is Prospera? It's a great question. I'm going to do the why first and the what. So there's this great website I encourage everyone to go to called WTF Happened in 1971. You'll find a bunch of trend lines that all break right in that year. They all revolve around the malaise, the cultural, uh, sociological, economic, and technological malaise in which we currently find ourselves. Um, and one of the things that is at the root cause of that issue is uh, a lack of improvement and innovation in governance. And by governance, I very specifically mean uh, governance institutions, which uh, are kind of like the rules of the game, right? Not just the government, uh, although governments can perform governance, 
but it's, you know, contract law, rule of law, property rights, uh, the legal and regulatory environment. It's the water in which we all swim each and every day that uh, impacts in both explicit and subtle ways how we all interact with one another. And those governance institutions have been roughly the same since the Treaty of Westphalia, actually, in, in 1492. And our general world direction, especially from the kind of hegemonic uh, powers of the United States and the EU and China and Russia, have ossified. We see almost no innovation in governance, right? If you think of governance as an industry for a second, most people don't usually, but I want to help listeners get in that frame of mind. Think of governance as an industry. A little over 200 companies in the industry. 80% of companies capture the entire, you know, a couple of players capture 80% of the market share. Customer satisfaction is incredibly low. And the service providers, the actual businesses here, right, the governments providing governments um, are getting worse and not better over time. Literally any objective metric by which we may want to measure these things, um, whether it be like rate of innovation, uh, customer perceived quality of these things. So you can take one glance at congressional approvals in the United States, for example, to see how much people don't like their government. So this industry in particular was right and is ripe for disruption and improvement. By disruption, I don't mean this in the destructive kind of Facebook break things uh, mentality. I mean it much more in the sense of taking what we know now in the world works and improving upon it. So the why behind this is effectively creating and pioneering new uh, best practices based governance institutions that can help push humanity forward into the next technological frontier and help create massive amounts of prosperity, especially in the developing world. As a, uh, and one of my favorite economists named Douglas North won the Nobel Prize in the late 1990s for his study of, of governance institutions, basically, as an explanatory, fact, the most powerful explanatory tool to understand, as Darren Isomobu, another famous political scientist, puts it, why some nations fail and why some nations prosper. Um, so I view the why behind Prospera um, as bringing prosperity to the developing world to, again, help push that innovation frontier for human society forward so that we can, as a result of Prospera existing and other projects like Prospera, become a much better governed, much more prosperous, cooperative, collective that is humanity, right? And now the how, exactly, or the what, sorry, what is Prospera? It's very straightforward. Prospera, the pro-presenting, the terminology is important here, the French president is a political subdivision of the government of Honduras, enshrined in the Honduran constitution, as well as the Zeta Organic Law, uh, they referenced in some international treaties. Um, it is akin to, in the analogy I like to make, a municipality in Honduras, with the key difference being that uh, Zeta stands for Zones of Economic Development and Employment, are special economic zones that within their geographic boundaries uh, can have different sets of governance institutions, different rules, to catalyze prosperity. So the Prosperity uh, was created to do exactly that, to take, we spent several years gathering best practices and governance, both legal, regulatory, as well as the administration thereof, um, seeing how those were done best around the world, wholly from examples that grew from destitute poverty to unimaginable wealth in very short periods of time, like Shenzhen, China, Hong Kong, Singapore, Dubai, uh, many other examples, and applying those within the Prosperity to bring prosperity, not just to the Honduran people, but to Latin America as a whole. I work for Honduras Prosperity, a, a, a U.S. C corporation. Um, we are the promoter and organizer of That means that we worked with the Honduran government to help create this thing, hand in glove with them, and are now investing in it to develop it. Yeah, that's the best thing. Right, 
they get it in some ways very novel and in other ways we've already seen the success which how China got rich we've seen it in Hong Kong we've seen it in Singapore we've seen it in Dubai but and Prosperous kind of the attempt to scale that model how can we do that more often we had another episode on the show with Tom W. Bell where we talked about law as a software society right so imagine you're running on an MS-DOS computer and to kind of change the software capacity and performance, whatever, to go through like decades long approval processes with a couple of thousands of decision makers, right. Right? you're not going to get very far. But what if you could pull sort of the different codes, source code from other places around the world, right? So in the United States, housing is getting more and more expensive, housing regulation. So what if you could take just the best regulatory frameworks from around the world, Tokyo, for example, and that an experiment, what's a combination of different laws is the best software to run a society. Yeah, yeah that's exactly right. That, that captures the kind of ethos behind uh, the, the insight, rather, behind why for us for exist and what we're trying to do. Um, I'm a huge fan of Tom W. Bell. He actually was intimately involved in our project early on. Um, our Roatent Common Law Code, which is the base legal code on which the Prosperous operates, um, is an iteration of a, a branch, if you will, of Tom Bell's ULEX. In fact, in Prospera, we sometimes forget this when speaking to other stakeholders and investors. When I refer to software inside Prospera, referring to the legal and regulatory environment, because it is the software on which society, not just information, technology, and computers, which is how we traditionally think of software. Now, having to port the note as a tangent, um, we, of course, do have actual computer software on running on top of this, right? We have uh, the former managing director of the Estonia program on matters building eProspera, which is the kind of administration software layer through which uh, all residents and businesses interact with Prospera's today. But you're right. I like thinking of uh, software much more in this legal and regulatory sense, not just because uh, it kind of brings clarity to what exactly we're talking about, but people also have this connotation mentally with software development and innovation and progress. That is exactly the kind of connotation we are trying to bring to legal and regulatory environments instead. And I, I think of it not as experimentation, but rather as taking what we know works from both the academic literature and real world examples around the world and applying it uh, to a specific region to rapidly cause uh, a leapfrog in economic growth, not just a, a 10% growth versus 5%. But exponential growth uh, in, in technology to skip the entire sections of the development curve uh, to rapidly move up. What is there in Prosper right now and what can people do in Prosper also in Prosper? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the Prosper ZA right now is several hundred acres on now in the Broatan Honduras. We also have the mainland site um, in the Seba. It's kind of a sister site. Um, the way we like to think of this is the Broatan site is a bit like the Hong Kong to La Seba Shenzhen. Um, the dynamic in the real world between Hong Kong and Shenzhen is kind of the banking, finance, and, and executive centers in Hong Kong. It's a small island, um, about 70% of which is actually a natural forest reserve, and the other 40% is the, the whole city. And then Shenzhen is where a lot of those companies actually manufacture, kind of called the Silicon Valley of China. It's where they manufacture a lot of the better goods and technological uh, goods that are then shipped around the world. Um, so we're trying to emulate a similar dynamic in Honduras with Rolatan being where these companies might be headquartered. Um, where you might have, say, the executive living or, or, or commuting from, and then commuting to, let's say, but where the manufacturing facilities might be, the light manufacturing especially, um, for some of these kind of forward-thinking and forward-looking technologies. Right now, what's physically there um, is a 400-acre uh, resort called Pristine Bay. Um, it is part of the Prosperous Eye. 
um, and it is rapidly being renovated, improved, and expanded to kind of be the the base of the city, which we intend to eventually catalyze there. Um, we also have uh, a Greenfield site right next to it, um, where we're building. We built our first, very first building um, called the Beta Building. The name was not meant to stick, by the way. So we internally called it the Beta Building because we were testing ourselves the beta version of our legal and regulatory software using software development for our last. And then I just stuck. Um, so we have the beta building there in Prospera. We're also building what are called the Duna Towers, um, which will be some 14-story uh, mixed use, mostly residential, but some commercial space on the lower floors, um, which are going vertical uh, right now. We have Leaf, which is a eco village, effectively. These are much lower-cost residential units. Right now, there are uh, anywhere between 60 and 75 on any given day. Remote workers, Hondurans, uh, that work out of the Prospera ZA jurisdiction. Because the uh, highly advantageous legal, regulatory, and especially labor uh, law environment within the jurisdiction, American firms and European firms, international firms, to be able to hire these young, ambitious Hondurans to work remotely for them, um, instead of those young Hondurans having to move out of the country as they travel to the United States of Europe or elsewhere. Um, those young workers wanted some lower cost housing close to the office so they can, we can make them a walkable environment. Um, so LEAF is an answer to that all. We have several other larger structures, both commercial, residential, and mixed use kind of under development in various stages of development right now. Um, but everybody can come visit, stay in uh, the Prosperous Ade, uh, in Christine Day, in the hotel there, Las Verandas. Um, they can work out of the Beta Building, which is our headquarters, which we've turned into a commercial co-working space. Um, they can also work out of some commercial co-working spaces we've recently constructed in Christine Day as well. Um, and they can also, we, of course, as part of the political and legal autonomy that this jurisdiction has. Um, or legal entities, right, based on this common law legal code. So any entrepreneur around the world who's looking for a legal and regulatory environment designed by entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs can come find their home inside of the Prosper Zene. We have about a little over 100 uh, legal entities in our, our legal entity registry right now, many of which are operating businesses in the jurisdiction, some remote, some physical. Uh, you know, to detail a little bit, what, what will be about some of the ones you and I know about, Circuit of the Factory, Sashat Bank, Base, or Old Terror. So anyone anywhere in the world, I encourage right now, if you're an entrepreneur looking for a home, this could be it. Uh, I think this you be hard-pressed to find somewhere better. Um, and you could also, anyone who just is looking for a new place to live and stay with a, with a community of like-minded people who have that entrepreneurial spirit, who want to reopen the innovation frontier, um, who want to see human, humanity advance, this is your home. That is exactly what we're building. Yeah, you mentioned so many things that attracted me about it. Like, first, there was kind of that idea thing. Like, we can create something, something new. We can do things differently. And they organized a conference in Prospera last April and came there and beautiful Caribbean island and just fell in love with the environment and with people. So there were a bunch of entrepreneurs working on open banking, on tokenization of assets, clinical trials for advanced activity drugs. And, you know, robots building construction materials on the side. So it's just a tech entrepreneur's dream to have that kind of community. That also inspired me to create Infinitup, which is the first startup city we see. Companies, Prospero and the startup city ecosystem of Egypt. And, you know, building um, innovations that we otherwise can't, can't realize and significantly at once Yeah, that's exactly right. Um... In fact, I, I often use you as an example in conversation sometimes of what we refer to as kind of co-creators. Uh, and I'm sure your audience is full of these people. So I want to put out an open call to all of them who might also be like you, right? Have that entrepreneurial spirit and be looking for a place to create something that was going to truly have a massive impact on the world. 
uh, is the best place to do that. And we call these people like yourself co-creators, meaning you are helping with us co-create what will become and is rapidly becoming a technology and economic hub of Latin America to become a kind of the Hong Kong of the Caribbean, if you will, the Hong Kong of the, the, the Western Hemisphere. Not from a density and urbanization perspective. When I say that, people think of high rises. It's, it's not what I mean. What I mean instead is the economic and business, the startup ecosystem, the innovation in popularity that comes along. With this as a background, let's um, go to and to the book, and the networks. First, I want to go through some basic terminology and that's kind of a bit of a summary of the book. Like, what's it trying to do, right? Or what is a network state? And in Balaji Srivastava's own words, it is a network state is a highly aligned online community with the capacity for collective action, crowdfunds territory around the world, and eventually gains diplomatic recognition from pre-existing states. That's kind of a very short version. There's kind of a longer version that has a couple of more details, like yes and no material, right? So it's a social network with a moral innovation. So it's a sense of less consciousness, community, and something in common. History, uh, it has a recognized founder, has a capacity for collective action. It has an in-person level of civility. It has an integrated cryptocurrency, a consensual government limited by a social smart contract. An archipelago of crowdfunded physical territories, a virtual capital, and an on-chain census that proves a large enough population, income, and real estate footprint to attain a measure of diplomatic recognition. Now that's a mouthful. Basically, what he's trying to do kind of is a blueprint for some of the things we've been discussing, developing new forms of governance, right? The book is divided into two parts, problem and solution. And most of it is actually on the problem side, right? So there's three chapters called History is Trajectory, the Tripolar Movement, Decentralization, Recentralization, and then the last part is kind of that blueprint, that solution. The problems that Balaji observes are, they're kind of competing systems of political power. Two of the main ones are represented broadly by what he calls the American establishment or the New York Times access. And the other one is the Communist Party of China, mentality or access or way of asserting political power. And the third one is what he's calling the global internet or the net, right? What I see is kind of the, the innovation of the book is um, sort of traditional political philosophy looks at nation states as the key units of power, right? And Balazi in that book is saying internet, the crypto blockchain movements, it's becoming unbelievably powerful, right? That probably would try to waste and how I interpreted it also speak to, like try to give it some consciousness, show them, hey, we're creating something together. All right, so in my interpretation, the book's kind of a manifesto for that network, for the crypto blockchain, for the global internet, where you can do things decentrally. Uh, and he wants it to inspire that movement to form lasting institutions provide an alternative to these other two problems that he sees as fundamentally bottoming. Get anything to that summary? Let's start by saying I'm a huge fan of, of Balaji. Um, uh, this book in particular is fantastic. Um, I love it as a kind of a clarion call, if you will, like you said, to the crypto community to begin building these types of lasting institutions, both political and physical. 
Um, I think the world needed this idea. It was the right time for it. I am elated to see what kind of real world impact this ends up having. Um, in my book, anything that increases innovation and improvement in governance is a good thing on its face, right? Um, so yeah, I'm super excited about this. Of course, I have uh, many areas where I agree with them and many areas where I disagree as well. Um, coming at it from, I would call it kind of a petitioner's lens, right? I, uh, because of our, our work with, uh, with Prospera, I'm kind of doing this day in and day out. So I think um, because Balaji is approaching it from a very intellectual view, um, kind of system building, he misses a few things uh, and hits a few things, some of which I, I hadn't thought about, like his one commitment idea of thing we can get into more later really is a beautiful insight. I think it's super important. Um, well, from there, we can go in whatever direction you want. I'm a huge fan of the network state and, and Balaji. Yeah, yeah. Um, how would you summarize what Balaji is diagnosing as what's wrong with our current situation? Why does he want to build something different? Is it same as the one that you're describing? Yeah, it's it's similar and different. Um, it's similar in that he also has identified the ossification that I described earlier that has caused a general sociocultural malaise, basically, um, at the heart of economic and cultural stagnation. Um, he has a great examples of this in the book where he talks about how like every movie now is a remake or a reboot or a sequel. It's just a good example of the cultural malaise. Um, he also echoes the kinds of Peter Thielian insight and, uh, you know, I was promised a flying car in the future and instead I got 180 characters, right? This is all a result of the malaise in governance institutions, the reason we don't have a flying car. As an aside, I'll recommend to the audience, uh, if you haven't read this, um, this book called Where's My Flying Car? Um, you guys, last name is Stoll, if you remember his first name. Jay, Jay Stores Hall. Jay Stores Hall, that's it. Fantastic book that goes into the details. I view it more from that perspective than some of so, uh, Balaji's perspective. He, um, one area in which kind of um, Balaji and I disagree now is that he considers the existing institutions, existing power blocks as almost uh, it's a foregone conclusion to him. He, he explains very good reasons for that. It's almost a foregone conclusion to him that they're going to ossify and decay and fall or in some way, shape, or form eventually. Um, I'm not sure that's the case. He basically thinks they're beyond saving, more or less. Um, our perspective is different as a company and I as an individual. We, like, we want to work with these existing institutions. I don't think they're beyond saving. I don't think these people are inherently kind of malicious and evil for the most part, which um, one can sometimes interpret from Balazi's more aggressive language. Um, I think we can forge a way forward in, uh, in improving governance institutions and, and innovating in governance uh, with hand in glove, with the existing institutions, existing nation states, and not kind of antagonistic to them or against them, or even building um, in a kind of agorist sense of parallel institutions to them. I think by working with them, we stand a much higher chance of having a greater positive real world impact now and into the future versus attempting to just wait for their downfall, so to speak, and then build around them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's also something that I observe. I think Laji is kind of vilifying some yes. of these existing institutions a lot, you know, which is kind of which is why he wants to he wants to raise arguments. We see existing institutions also sometimes as just certain things, right? Yes. Yep. We living in a world that is rapidly developed compared to, you know, most of history. Right. So I always like to point out, you know, when Adam Smith, basically the godfather of economics, was writing The Wealth of Nations in 1976, I think. And um, basically what he saw was an emerging system of like private property and of trade and of markets as a technology that could significantly improve the world. Um, he saw, but he also saw an agricultural society 
And then Adam Smith's view, kind of what was the maximum alpha that it could get was about three or four X the existing state, right? So anywhere that a time where the average person earned probably about, I think, $3 per day or something. Um, what did end up happening was about a 30X improvement, right? So we're earning about $100 per day now, right? So some of these institutions have delivered growth, right? So, you know, I think the better way to view them would be as let's find better ways that can kind of gradually incrementally replace some of the uh, flawed mechanisms existing, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, you it's not saying, oh, these institutions are bad and evil and we should wait for their downfall and build around them. It's instead saying these institutions have done absolutely unbelievable things to you describe the wealth and the life that we say is just average middle-class, low-middle-class American, for example, live today to an American living in 1780, or after someone's written in the Bill of Rights, 1791, say, um, and you try to describe it in the world today, and they would think you were out of your mind. This would be completely impossible. The, the tremendous growth in, in, in innovation, in well-being, in prosperity, in uh, abundance would be completely incompetent. Yes, that's exactly right. Existing institutions have done great things. So it's not the idea that we need to either actively or passively wait for the institutions to kind of go away. It is instead saying, this is great, has done great things, and we can do better. Saying this is good and this is not the end of the road, right? People often misconstrue, this is one of my favorite kind of hobby courses, but people misconstrue, Francis Bukiyama is saying, famous political scientist and saying in the late 90s that we reached the end of history, the title of this book, kind of provocative clip maybe. Well, this point and all, um, but in any event, people still think of this as like, oh, we're at the end of history, right? Liberal democratic orders are the ideal. It's how far humans can go in governance and we're there. So let's just write it out. We're wealthy enough. Let's write it out. Uh, that is where I fundamentally disagree with the mainstream. Uh, yes, we are abundant, abundant and wealthy now, and it could be so much better, especially having spent so much time in the developing world now, not just Honduras, but in other places. I see like the tremendous impact we could have on the lived experience of people who are suffering for no reason other than their governance institutions are ineffective and are not properly designed or administered. I think we've done well so far and we can do several orders of magnitude better. It's about a much brighter, more optimistic vision for the future, not necessarily a optimistic vision of the present, which is I think a core disagreement. Exactly. I think that's very important. Let's just have that on the right. I think I'm also describing myself fundamentally as an optimist. I'm approaching you know, not the world, not as, hey, I know it's better. I mean, often these things are the only reason. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of things I'd like to talk about that I found very interesting. Um, three things, three core things that I really like about the book. And you can pick up on some of these and on the down or another one to the conversation. One that I found really interesting was what Balaji calls the gods, state, and network, right? So he's kind of starting a bit with the Nietzschean insight. God is that. There was kind of an institution that was placed in the 19th century by advances in the science and the technology. So these things that we couldn't explain before, but explain all the stuff. Right? And, and, you know, some of the older institutions lost kind of their authority, like the power over defining what proves of what the world is, right? Um, but it's been kind of replaced by faith in the state in many ways, right? The Leviathan, kind of the, uh, the last resorts, monopoly on force, 
right? Sort of without it, society would fall apart into, you know, life that is nasty, brutish, and short. So that is, I think, an interesting terminology. And what he tries to um, make us think of is uh, the possibilities to go away from or to develop new forms of government and governance that don't require top-down decision-making, that is more voluntary and works with real social contracts, right? So with incentives, instead of the force of the sword, this could be a more peaceful, a more orderly, right? Not kind of an anarchic and chaotic world where everyone might do whatever they want, right? Speaking more of an kind of emerging order and it's kind of different based more voluntary contracts, right? So, you know, states rely on force. If you don't pay any of your taxes, first get some letters saying, oh, please pay your taxes, right? Then you get letters with fines. And, you know, if you don't pay these fines and then accumulate it, the police will serve in the wrist, right? It will be futile to say, hey, I didn't agree to receive your services. So something that he wants to think of is how could, um, or in his own words, we want to be able to peacefully start a new state for the same reason that we want a bare pot of earth, a blank sheet of paper, an empty textbook, or a fresh startup or clean slate, because we want to build something new without historic constraints. Right. Right. Yeah. I like the dichotomy, the kind of uh, mental framework um, that he sets up there. Um, I think that just a few kind of small comments on it. So the the famous quote from Nietzsche, which you mentioned, that Balaji mentions as well, God is dead. If you actually read the whole section there, Nietzsche is not saying this in celebration, but in lament. Um, saying God is dead and we killed him, and that's bad. Okay. And saying it because even Nietzsche at the time recognized that there are, to your Chesterton spent points earlier, which is what I'm driving at, uh, the religion at the time played an important role in creating what are called informal social institutions as opposed to formal written governance institutions that really binded society together, right? So a problem that happened, which Nietzsche correctly predicted at the time, um, was not that common misconception, which is that God is dead and we killed him and now the world's going to be amazing and humanist and whatever. What he said instead was, um, because these informal folks, he didn't use this language, but put it in modern sociological terms, because these informal social institutions are gone, the state is going to now encroach upon areas that were previously handled voluntarily, communally, and socially via these completely voluntary and consensual um, informal social institutions. Um, so it was actually more of him saying the Leviathan is, in the Hobbesian sense, the Leviathan is coming and that's not a good thing. Um, because when you instead, uh, you think about these informal social institutions, if they're quite flexible and allow for exceptions uh, as well as precedent, um, whereas it's much harder to do with the state because of the concept of rule of law and some other things. Um, so I, I think uh, he makes a good point and I agree with him. Like, yes, we all want a, a blank slate from which to build something beautiful and new. Um, where I disagree with him is he sees this as an opportunity to build something fantastical that uh, is effectively unmoored from anything previous. So this is a strong contrast between Elijah's approach and the, the practical approach, if you will, which is instead, as I mentioned earlier, our approach is based on best practices on what we know has worked over millennia, over the recent centuries, even over recent history, as recently as the last 50, 60 years, but places that have grown quickly. It's instead of saying, oh, this is all crap, I'm going to build something much better. It's saying, no, there's beautiful nuggets, wisdom here. There are chipsters and fences all over the place. Um, what we're going to do is instead agglomerate simply the best practices that we know have worked, that we know uh, exist to solve specific problems uh, that, that protect us from some of these uh, chipsters and fences 
And we're just going to both prove them kind of on the margins, but also shift some of the business models and the incentives so that the incentives between, say, the governed and the governing the more along, things like that. Um, but all while still incorporating um, the these key insights and institutions that exist for a reason, right? So he's building something entirely new based off of uh, what, what his, his third revolution after the state, which was the network um, through these crypto and blockchain technologies. Um, and it's something entirely new, more or less the unmoored from these previously existing institutions. And I actually don't view that as a good thing. Uh, I view that um, we don't know what we don't know, right? And I think deviating too far from existing norms, I, I, I use this kind of internal phrase to guide my, my intuition about these things, which is Maya, most advanced yet acceptable. And I think uh, Balaji's concept was a bit beyond Maya. Like it, it, it bulldozes every single chest of defense and starts over from scratch. Which might create something beautiful, and might create something. Um, we we can look to examples of attempts at utopian societies in the United States and around the world over the last 50, 60 years to see how badly it can go awry when you do truly start from a completely blank slate. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree, and I think he's sometimes saying a bit the, the right point there. But I think he wants to say like starting something new is reconfiguring previously the existing elements. I think one way that he Kind of edges against that, or why, why much of this concept is not amounting to, you know, literally that blank slate is sort of, you know, be one step where states or network societies kind of to start with one key moral innovation that's kind of sufficiently small. It's not trying to everything new from scratch, it's just trying to innovate in one key area. It's like when you're a startup, you shouldn't write things completely from scratch, you should copy paste existing software and existing practices find one area that you could make better, right? So I think that sometimes there's a bit of an inconsistency. Well, when it comes, I, I, I've completely, completely agreed. Um, in fact, I want to uh, just a little bit, and because you mentioned the one commandment thing I mentioned earlier too. I think this is a beautiful insight of his in the book that has not been written about elsewhere that I'm aware of, that uh, is super, super important. Um, so Balanji's concept of the one commandment in the book is basically Look, you can't create a network in a new state that has an, a sense of kind of unity and national of an identity being attached to it, uh, unless it involves a moral bedrock foundation as well. There's this great quote I read uh, earlier today, actually, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but someone, uh, it was a conversation between philosophers, and one asked the other, why don't we build the beautiful cathedrals anymore? He said, well, uh, those cathedrals were built on faith and on a vision. And we, all we moderns have are opinions, and opinions don't build cathedrals, right? Um, so his one commandment inside is, is, is in reference to that. It's understanding that, in, that, that key problem, um, that without a moral and ethical foundation, just because of kind of base human psychology, um, you're not going to be able to have this, this rallying around flat effect, this um, yeah. uh, cultural unity that is really founded upon those cultural and ethical frameworks. But I think his idea of the one commandment there is super important in any aspiring entrepreneur in the startup city, startup society, special economic zone space, um, should really heed. So something that sounds like kind of an escapist vision, like let's go to our deserted island and have kind of our, you know, utopian society. I, I would make that more clear that that's like, that that's not, I think what he's trying to get, I think he's trying to. Again, like I said, this manifesto build lasting institutions that can prove the work we live in, right? And not sort of be self-contained 
separate units on their own, just deliver on, you know, what they're like, it's, it's more than that, right? It's, there's kind of the half legitimacy that's built in, right? It starts from that small sort of one command innovation to diplomatic recognition. But yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, think, uh, what. But this is hitting at there's this uh, there's this political science concept known as autoxony. Autoxony refers to the idea, this um, concept or sense of a people being a people. And autoxony refers to feeling like you are of a people and of a place of a nation, basically. Um, and it's really, really important. Like autoxony is the reason to, oh, you can put it exactly in these terms. Uh, Antonio Garcia Martinez wrote about this recently a tablet. And he, he puts it in slightly different terminology, but to use an example, he uses like autoxony is the reason. That a, a grandmother in Ukraine kicked a whole in the last right? Um, using it to use an extreme example. So it's super important, um, I think, to really, yeah, it's not, it's not escapist as you're describing, it's not utopian as you're describing, but what it is is an attempt to rally around a cultural or moral innovation and insight can create a sense of people and a sense of that sense of autonomy, right? If you have a network state that's just predicated on or a startup society, right? A new city, especially economic zone, that is only predicated on like the idea that, oh, we have a 20% better regulatory. It's not going to last very long. People are not going to work hard um, and to really grind through difficult initial conditions to bring that idea into reality. Now, if you have a much stronger one commandment, like uh, in it, Prosper, like, if I had to put it in a sentence, would be like, uh, every human has the potential to flourish if only they were given the conditions to do so. Right? As a deep moral and ethical insight, that we are now putting into action, we work every day toward is making that a reality that to unleash that untapped potential of humanity at large. Um, so I think this, yeah, this one commandment principle is not escapist to your point, it's not utopian, but it's instead a, a really grounding and inspiring and passion inducing thing um, that is just critically important for any sort of project that wants to build something new. Exactly. Another grain of thought that I really liked about the book when, when he's talking about the influence of technology and history that is now uh, giving us a sense of how we can use modern technology like crypto and blockchain to, you know, improve, right? To do things differently now, right? So he was going, for example, into how map making for the printing press and shooting at light bulbs um, sort of influenced the course of history. Map making really made the physical world kind of visible. And it was kind of a technology that nation states were kind of predicated because you kind of see your physical territory. And when people see something like that, they're kind of inclined to draw boundaries, right? Which is kind of what something that underpins the modern order of nation states, but can also in some sense, some sense be damaging, right? Because you're trampling on the rights of people that are living, that living this. That's a good results and bad results. That's kind of a similar, similar analogy to blockchain as a technology turns out. So blockchain is kind of a way to write a definite history or ledger of transactions, right? So you can have a community that's kind of run on the same measure. It's transactions, it's history, it's recorded, right? And that's kind of a decentralized mechanism for truth. Right. And for, Hey, we made this transaction, others, the network has seen it and verified it. Right. So there's no powerful leader that can then come and say, oh, it's, here's the truth that everyone's going to be right and kind of eradicates 
that kind of from the pages of the annals of history and how they used the rules to exert power. Like I found that concept pretty helpful. I completely agree. So the, the potential here for blockchain technology, even beyond the transaction, I think what's important is that it's an immutable record of data, of information, full stop. Despots and, and autocrats around the world, one of the first things they do when they take power. There's a famous meme about this on the internet with Stalin, right? There's a famous photo of him with a few of his lieutenants. Mm-hmm. And then um, later they used that uh, they were in and out of the photo, basically, because Stalin's had them, um, had them uh, killed ostensibly. No one knows. They disappear. Um, and this rewriting of the history is something that despots and autocrats, like, first thing they do to make themselves central to that history and to build a story around them. Just completely transformational potential of, of blockchain technology for that particular application is that history is no longer written by the victors. History is written by the blockchain. And anyone can access it and see it. And anyone can see what the truth of the matter was. Victor. This has this powerful decentralizing. He spent a lot of time talking about the media, which I just love that entire section of the book. Um, I deal with the media a lot. Um, working with Prosper and the chief marketing officer. And um, I just found all of his insights and impression there totally warranted and valid. Um, they give a couple of examples. Oh, so many. But there's like a couple of memes about Prospera that the media keep propagating um, that are just like demonstrably false to the point where like we probably might end up taking legal action against some of these uh, publications because they're just like we can just break that the claims are false and they're damaging to our business and, and the people involved. Um, so I'll give you a, like two concrete examples, right? Um, the Guardian recently published by an author named Jeff Burst who um, a little insider baseball here. His wife um, is apparently related, closely related to um, some of the higher up members of uh, a political party in Honduras that doesn't like us. Uh, just a funny coincidence. Um, in any event, it was a terrible article. Like, not only was the point of rhythm, it was full of lies. Um, and one of the lines that he wrote in there was that Crawfishlon Village, uh, which is right next to Crawfish Development, not what's in it to be clear, right next to our development was trampled by us and he specifically claims that we appropriate people's land etc which is just demonstrably false um we bought the property we're operating on as a greenfield site meaning nothing was there at all from private owners in private party transactions um no land has ever been appropriated it's illegal in like four or five different ways and to be super clear uh if we were to appropriate something can i do if that were to happen now somehow that would be a violation of the core principles of conflict formation i would quit that day I and others, our founder and the visionary behind Eric Berman, would quit that day. You know, it would never, ever, ever. Um, so that's just one, and one example of demonstrably false. And so demonstrably false, in fact, he just makes the allegation vaguely. You'll note in both this publication and others that mention this expropriation claim, they never say who was expropriated. You would think, you would think someone was expropriated. Surely they would want to talk to the media about it. Like, look what these evil Americans are doing. They, they kicked me off. Possibly to prove. <laughs> you could go and talk to them and prove it. And they never talk to anyone because that person does not exist. Because nothing is ever made property. This is but one very small example. The Guardian did it. A few others did it. They also love to claim that, like, for example, I'm going to these details to draw a broader point about allergies, media, and narrative. So bear with me. Um, they also claim that Prospera is effectively an exclusionary Unclans for international wealthy people, basically. Um, if you go in, and you know this, because you've done that, if you walk into the beta building and prosper, if I'm not there, literally everyone there is a Honduran. Yep. Literally everyone there. And in terms of raw data, hundreds of people that are working in and out of the jurisdiction on any given day, literally all of them are Honduran. Except for maybe one or two technology company founders who have hired nothing but Honduran staff, right? So... 
the claim on its face that we're an exclusionary zone for internationals is so absurd on its face. If he did one iota of research or spoke with any of the people there, we find that's not true. And you would also find we have the single largest employer, gainful employment of the process rock community. And they all love it. They work in our jurisdiction. You go to some of them. Essentially, the like, like, taxi drivers, security guards, like they're all like, right? Because well, well, we have videos of them. On, jobs and, yeah, we have videos of them on our social media. They offer voluntarily just talking about how gave them an opportunity to actually get gainful employment instead of doing yeah. odd men jobs here and there. Um, but yeah, just very democratically false things. Now, there's a reason the media does this. I mean, Balaji did a great job of explaining this. Um, that the media is agenda-driven. They're not truth-driven. They're agenda-driven because right now their business model is dying because of the advent of new technologies. Um, and so they're effectively, so these are the dying gas and the dying flails of traditional media. I love that he calls the New York Times the, the Salzburg um, organization because most people don't realize this, but the New York Times loves to talk about equity and how evil it is to inherit things. New York Times has been owned and operated by the Spielberger family for over 100 years. Um, the current chairman and CEO is a member of the Spielberger family. He had it handed down to him. His father had it handed down to him. So these people, uh, the media is a great example of an industry that's right for disruption of the blockchain technology as well. Um, and and my my kind of core point here, drawing way back to our initial point here about the blockchain creating uh, an immutable record of truth, it totally disempowers the New York Times. Their main role in society right now, where they draw not monetary power, but political and social power, is that they're viewed as the paper of record, right? And the place people go for truth. So they set cultural narratives. If you instead disrupt that uh, industry with decentralized truth, with a blockchain ledger of data that can prove when things happen, who did them, and what happened, uh, the New York Times is out of business. They can no longer do the narrative uh, generation do the uh, consent manufacturing, to use the non Chomsky term, that they currently do, they're completely disempowered in it by a fully decentralized system that instead prioritizes truth over agenda. And I think that is beautiful. That's probably the best section of the book in my mind. And it's just spot on. I, I, uh, I love that he has put the book into a kind of a website with chapters. I sent that chapter to people. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's amazing that the media is full of anti-tech narratives. But at the same time, the general population is totally pro-tech. Oh, yeah. Like, like brand research and leverage companies. We're doing surveys all the time. But think of big tech companies. They're, they're the best rated companies, way rated way better than others. It's just that the media is seeing their business models, right? That is they're exactly. doing what they do better. Much, much better. That's exactly right. And just put a final pin in that exact point and it's to piggyback off what you just said. Um, all that we really want to do at the end of the day, bring that type of innovation and make tech so powerful, right? Creating new things of value for people and bring that to governments. So in the congressional approval rate or 5%, which is like we're the cover now, and instead imagine the alternative being on 90%, right? Because people voluntarily consented to it because the incentives of the governing body and the individuals that are being governed are aligned. And because as a result of that, innovation and improvement happens instead of ossification and decay layer after layer after layer of uh, seemingly immovable uh, regulation. So that was definitely one of my favorites. And he also has a couple of passages where he's talking about, you know, how, um, you know, we, we like to talk very often about business regulations, right? And we just learn things that are, you know, like that where we can demonstrate Many of the technologies that we could build, for example, 
I was going to like about a lot is it held back, right? So, you know, one example is COVID vaccines. We can develop them within the course of days, right? But with our institution, with the FDA, with drug approval, they take years, sometimes decades and hundreds of millions, sometimes billions of dollars to bring to the market, right? So we could be so much more advanced in many areas if we ran our societies on better software. And I think he does a really good job of pointing out some of these very specific flaws, right? So he empowers us and readers kind of a kind of a, an idea of what we can prove on a base or what commandments. Like he, for example, he talks about, you know, you can build a country that's not regulated by the FDA, right? And instead develops their alternative mechanism storing drugs that are safe and effective. And um, sort of this would allow a lot of innovation to grow. Yeah, that's exactly right. I'm, I'll just uh, kind of illustrate that point again with, with two very quick examples. One he gives in the book, and one from my own personal life. In the book, he discusses how, and this is so mind-blowing, what he said in the book, I thought he was like exaggerating, so I looked it up afterward, he was like, uh, Moderna developed the mRNA vaccine that has saved uh, countless lives at this point. Two days after they received the genetic sequence of the COVID virus, um, two days, two days, right? Um, and it wasn't, and this was in February, 2020, January, uh, January, 2020, excuse me. Yeah. Yeah. January, 2020. And we didn't actually get anyone receiving that vaccine until like October, November of that year. We could have had it, uh, if we could have just immediately spun up manufacturing capacities in like March, the latest, which is hundreds of thousands of lives lost because the FDA refused to contemplate challenge trial because they refused to bend on their completely old and broken and ineffective methods of, of forcing people to run clinical trials a specific way. Um, and it killed literally hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, and this is squarely the feat of the FDA because they refused to, to budge on that. I'll give you another example from my life. So my mom has a, a terminal genetic illness called cystic fibrosis, right? This illness is a result of a particular protein. I'm going to do particular protein. There's this drug she's taking now uh, that has saved and extended her life. She's now one of the oldest cystic fibrosis patients in the entire world, uh, because they import this drug that she was able to get on uh, about three years ago. It's called Tricap. Here's what's frustrating though. She almost died in 2016 when this drug existed because she didn't have access to it. And we knew it existed at the time because uh, the team that invented it was the team at the hospital where she was being seen here at University of Illinois. Fantastic medical research. Uh, and, but that drug took about seven years from when they initially synthesized it and did safety trials, uh, which can happen very quickly, to when it was actually on the market. Um, and although she didn't die, uh, St. Kevin's, uh, she could have died as a result of the fact that the FDA kept something. So I am particularly passionate about the FDA specifically because, yeah, my, my mom's lung function right now is around 60%. For way of comparison, a normal person is between 95 to 98%. Uh, it's like breathing through a straw constantly. But it could have been higher if she had gotten this drug earlier and it had stopped the progressive damage that happens over time. So what it does, it just fixes that protein that's not functioning. I just make it function again. And she could be living a much more healthy life right now, able to literally do more than not struggle for breath all the time. Were the FDA, not even to not exist, although sure, I would love to replace it with something else, but like if it was even rational, the harm caused preventing good drugs from getting to market massively, massively, massively outweighs any claimed uh, safety that is increased from the FDA processes. So I completely agree with you. And the FDA is my favorite example of this because it's such an easy point. Yeah, and I, I had three episodes in this podcast. I was at two episode four and episode eight talking about that exact topic, right? And 
just to illustrate again that the solution is like a blank slate, a specific solution that Prospera has is something called country regulation, right? So have a list of 20 countries or city countries. And, you know, if the drug is approved in one of the 20 countries, you can take it here. Because what's the reason that we shouldn't trust the regulator in Japan versus in Germany or Norway versus that states, right? But no, the FDA insists, oh, it has to be tested here in the United States. And just to illustrate what that new right? So during the AIDS in the 1980s, HIV patients weren't able to get drugs that were in use and were saving people's lives in Germany and France and Japan and in Israel to prevent them from dealing with a deadly disease. Right? Yep. So the FDA later, seven years, approved it and they kind of made them a mistake in their press release. Um, if you think a bit about it, so they say, oh, now by approving it, we're saving 10,000 lives. Kind of implies, well, the seven years. Well, when you didn't allow it, you know, he died. So, yeah, that's exactly right. To get just one more uh, very top, small topical example, but this is very recent. Um, you know, there was a recent baby formula shortage in the United States. That was also yep. the FDA's fault. Exactly. The FDA uh, requires the manufacturer of baby formula in the United States to be heavily regulated and to sell baby formula in the U.S. at the manufactured in the U.S., which makes absolutely no sense because what they weren't doing was they weren't allowing importation of baby formula from the EU. Where, uh, by the way, I'm a, I'm a seasoned seed oil disrespecter, right? Um, the EU baby formula doesn't contain seed oil. It is objectively, by anyone who knows anything about nutrition, healthier than U.S. Uh, uh, baby formula. Much better. And the SDA, still to this day, would not allow any of the importation. I mean, to your point about the press release, did a press release where he was like doing this big fanfare of showing a military shipment of EU baby formula to the U.S. as an emergency. That could just be happening on container ships every day, but the FDA won't. Do we, do we want to continue our rounds uh, about the SEC? <laughs> oh, my God. So, this is crazy. So this is morning. I'll share with the audience in bank terms. And Nicholas and I were talking about a particular uh, a potential portfolio company he was looking at. Um, and we were talking about the arena for it and everything. And I looked at it, and it was immediately like, oh, Nicholas, this is a leak. Um, he was like, I don't think it is. I was like, no, it is. Um, because uh, if you have a, a U.S. person involved or U.S. investor or anything U.S. related with anything to do with finance, uh, the Supreme Court has ruled that SEC is one of the few regulatory agencies along with the FDA that has what's called uh, extraterritorial jurisdiction. What that means is you could be a U.S. person, uh, just a U.S. citizen living somewhere else. You fail to comply in, in, in doing things in finance. You fail to comply with SEC regulations despite the fact that you're nowhere near the U.S. Um, and because of these regulations, like a potential massively impactful uh, company that could solve a massive problem in the world, um, you're now having to go probably spend some money to go talk to lawyers to see if you can even invest in it because of these arcane, dated, absurd ACC rules. I've dealt with this a lot in talking with companies that want to move to Prospera. I, unfortunately, I've had to deliver some bad news a few times where I'm talking to and I'm like, this is a great idea. You should set up a Prospera anyway. But by the way, you can't have any U.S. investors, any U.S. executives, or any U.S. customers, because if you do, you're regulated by the SEC and you, your business model is done. And they're like, well, it's the biggest capital market in the world. It's the biggest economy in the world. You mean I can't sell there? No, you can't. I'm not as funny to the A has extraterritorial jurisdiction and has an extraterritorial influence, but they can like shut company down. That would be a great example. So yeah, the A had the same mandate as the SEC, extraterritorially. So if you, an American, would go to receive medical treatment in Mexico, the FDA wouldn't like that kind of treatment, they could go and shut down the Mexico. 
Like, yeah, you're right. You're right. No, that's a great point. I think that had that yeah, answer. Yeah, you're exactly right. No, but I was correct. Specifically, it's manufactured pharmaceutical. They also have to do it. They want to sell them into the U.S. They have to be approved by the FDA. And the FDA, no matter where in the world your manufacturing plant is, has to be inspected by it. But you're right. And they don't have extraterritorial jurisdiction in much things that they do at pharmaceutical manufacturing specifically. I know that's because they helped to a pharma firm the lawyer said it could prosper and all that. You're selling in the U.S., you might as well just go ahead and get FDN approval because they're going to come inspect anyway. You have to go outside of the country somewhere else to take the drug. Exactly. Right. Which is the reality for many patients. That's right. And, you know, people that generally find important for drugs to be regulated by the FDA, which is most people. And most people would say that it's also the process is bad and too expensive. They would probably say reform it. But none of them would say it's wrong that people can go to a different company. To take it, make no sense. Yeah, make no sense at all. Fundamentally, the, the one of the things that issue here then I think Prosper Souls were rather beautifully is that um, if you apply a lot of the arguments people make about bodily autonomy on any side of the political aisle, yeah. whether it be progressives with abortion right, my body, my choice, whether it be conservatives right, which I should be able to own things that I want to own because my body, my choice, should be able to own the guns I want to own, etc. Across the aisle, people believe in this kind of bodily autonomy. Um, but they never apply this for some reason to medical treatment specifically, which makes no sense at all. So Prosper solves this in a, in what I think is a good balancing act. Um, of course, again, we have a, our basis is the U.S. common law principle, which has very strong, um, contract enforcement, anti-fraud provisions and holds people liable if they harm others knowingly, intentionally, or in many cases, with strict liability, meaning unknowingly or unintentionally. So Prosper, the way this works is if you have a firm that chooses one of the three regulatory options, which we call the common law option, and they're a medical firm, let's say they do, for an anodyne example, so they do stem cell, right? But it's not taking the treatment they do. Maybe it's approved in the EU and Thailand and Russia and China, but it's not approved in the U.S. Well, an American, they come to Prosper, right, for this particular firm, um, receive free prior informed consent of all the potential risks uh, thereof, and they, the, the medical company approved they did this. And that person has a right to try that drug because they do have bodily autonomy. They can, in fact, choose to take and do things, excuse me, that they, they can't do um, in the U.S. So Prosper solved this as well by making sure on the back end, right, if there is some sort of harm clause, if, say, the clinic misinforms the patient about the risks involved in the patient's harm in some way, that what's called treble damages, which means whatever damages the uh, arbitral proceeding that would be brought against them or awarded reacts automatically. And they pitch the corporate veil, so the individual actors involved are liable personally. So the, we, uh, the way I like to describe this, right, it's like it's much more with the common law approach, the one more freedom to innovate and do cool things on the front end. But there's also a much, much stronger punishment on the back end if you were to deploy someone or harm someone. Exactly. Like, it's, think about it, it's sort of reciprocal versus preemptive. Like, one approach says, you know, if you mess it up, you're liable, you have to compensate. So, you know, why would you do any unconsciously? Then, then, then you're bound to be sued and your company will be shut down. Not just your company, but you personally, like if it's a restaurant. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Many of us, ADS, the whatever, they have this vendor approach where girls call it the bottleneck approach, right? So we have to say yes before you can do anything, just so there's not even a chance that you get something happen, right? And if you can compare that to, you know, a, um, you know, when a, there's risks in everything, right? When you go out on the streets, um, when you're a child with her, you have to retract that happens. But the solution would be, um, to basically lock that child up in a cage so it can't do anything. 
That's a perfect analogy to the way that the existing institutions try to treat people. That's exactly right. It's not just that, but it's also like sometimes you don't even know uh, when you are tripping one of their wires. I'll give you an example. Prediction markets are this amazing thing, right? That, that yeah, we talked about it in episode two with the brilliant Robin Hansen. I love, I'm a huge fan of Robin Hansen. Oh, oh episode three. Once ago, he's awesome. Love um, so yeah, I don't need to rewrite your audience and the, the power and bullshit. Sure. sure. So the prediction markets is a bunch of like research on this. The basically prediction markets are a way to solve a bunch of problems where there's a lot of uncertainty in the future because you create incentive to accurately predict things. This is why we have one in the world robust prediction market that functions extremely well, is extremely liquid. And as a result of that results in a efficient allocation of capital and resources and this derivatives markets in, in the financial industry. Um, so there's been this idea for a long time in tech, so a long time, a decade, it feels like a long time in tech to uh, create prediction markets for a bunch of other things so that we get more accurate data about what the future might hold because we'll have a financial incentive to be right. Um, Philip Tedlock wrote a whole book about this called Stupid Casters, pretty awesome. Everybody encourage everybody to read it. Um, well, there was one of these online, I'll predict it. They had, because of the government, they had very strong restrictions on how much you could invest, what, how much you could bet on your predictions. Um, and it was very limited. And even that, that was super limited, was not one one hundredth of what a prediction market could be. It was shut down last week. It was shut down last week because uh, about four years ago, Predict It, the name of the company, went to the government and said, listen, here's what we want to do. Don't have any regulations about this on the book right now, other than these ones, which we already complied with. Um, will you please issue what's called a letter of no action to us so that we can operate? What a letter of no action says is like the government U.S. government looks at you and says, look, I know we don't regulate what you do specifically. It might be a gray zone or whatever, but we're going to explicitly tell you that you can operate. That we're, we're not going to take any action against you. A letter of no action. And they completely arbitrarily pulled predictive, predictive letter of no action last week. So the plan has to shut down in February 2023 as no future whatsoever because the government arbitrarily decided to shut them down. It's happened in the last few days. Just incredible. It's incredible. Also, what I learned from Robert Hansen is that stock markets and insurance as a product was kind of not allowed by financial regulation in the United States for decades because it kind of fell under. Oh my gosh. Great. I didn't realize that was kind of, you know, when you think about insurance, it's, you know, in a way of offsetting uncertainty. Basically, a financial product that kind of pools were easily protected against the downsides. Right. Mm -hmm. So, Always that, yeah, but it, right. No, it isn't. If you, um, if you know what you're doing, or if you use that product, um, you know, but it, it, under the current software, you have to prove for decades that if these products to someone who has no incentive at all to allow it, in fact, the strongest incentive not to exactly, mm -hmm. and strongest incentive not to because you know, if. They're in this situation. I don't want to be in that situation. That would oh. be the same thing. So they're under the situation. They allow something that's bad. It goes back to them, right? They can fire an ostracize. If they don't allow it, nobody knows. I mean, prediction markets is something that bonks like us here. But that can do a lot of good. How innovation starts. Um, so just, uh, it's just the way the incentives are set up. It's, 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 right. it's not the fault of people involved. Yeah, this is super important. I want to kind of double click on what you just said because this is a common misconception, right? You'll hear people that talk about the regulatory environments. They often all handedly talk about the regulator. They're evil, malicious people. Exactly. That's not the case at all. These regulators are very well meaning people who legitimately think, believe 
and try to do good. And the difference is simply, and this is why institutions are so important. Institutions are the incentives and incentives drive action, right? Um, so let's take another example we discussed yesterday. Um, you could offer me $10 million a year to be a regulator at the national, uh, um, at the nuclear regulatory commission that regulates the permits for new nuclear reactor in the U.S. plants, and I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it because the incentives are so screwed up. The NRC has not uh, approved a new nuclear reactor since it was created in the late 1970s, not one, until last week, they approved new scale, which is awesome. Um, but the reason they hadn't done that is not because the bureaucrats are evil people that don't want cheap power in the U.S., quite the contrary. Because these people believe they're protecting and And because they have an incentive to stop everything. Because imagine for a second, you're a regulator. You're looking at some stuff that you don't even fully understand, by the way, because often the entrepreneurs know way more than the regulators downside. You're looking at something you don't deeply understand, but you get the gist of, and you're like, all right, if I approve this, and it closes a three-mile island-style nuclear meltdown, I'm fired, my family is ashamed, I can never get another job, no one in this office can get another job, and we're all screwed for life, basically, and I'm going to have documentaries made about how bad I am. But if I disapprove it because of this exact incentive, the only person harmed is the company, and this happens day in and day out. And the company can go pitch the New York Times and say, hey, I got to show them on the NRC. And the New York Times is going to say, I'm sure they have a good reason. I'm not writing about this in a, in a sympathetic way. So when they say no, there's no incentive. Uh, sorry, the incentive is to say no because there's no punishment uh, or, or kind of feedback mechanism. Or, there's no feedback mechanism at all to indicate to them that the no was a bad idea. But there's an incredibly potent feedback mechanism. mechanism. The second they approve something that does mess up, they're screwed for life. From so yeah, I would hate to be them too. I think they're in a really tough position. Exactly. So I mean, also inviting, you know, all this make your regulators ahead of Many of us talked to, they wanted to create better. I mean, they are stuck with all the SEC's 1930s securities laws. Like, they realized, yeah, that doesn't make sense. And the, but the process to update it is also, can, can do that. That doesn't win you elections. Nobody would understand what you're trying to do when you're saying, oh, we need to, you know. Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. And then there's a bunch of political forces that stop it too. I'll just make one more book recommendation related to this. Mm -hmm. It's this fabulous book called Bootlayers and Baptists yeah. that describes the political force. So we talked about the bureaucratic incentives. There's also a bunch of political forces that exist to keep these old rules in place. Why it's important to do these things in new zones, especially economic zones. And I encourage the audience to go read this book called Bootlayers and Baptists that goes into exquisite detail about the dynamics of how this happens using prohibition, occult prohibition in the United States. It's kind of a vignette to explain these phenomena. Exactly. We're going a bit away from Balaji's book. <laughs> One thing that I wanted to talk about um, that I didn't like so much about the book is kind of that, I call it the remote network society model. I would still like to steal man that idea for a moment, but I think Balaji is trying to do some looking at the attempts so far at building new forms of governance. There's a history of you know, seasteading, which didn't work out. Unit economics, you know, Patrick Friedman is one of the key people in that. And then that shifted towards working with governments um, under that kind of special economic zone model and kind of providing legitimacy, right? So and that model has legitimacy built in, right? So we're trying to make arguments, prosperous making arguments that are agreeable by everyone, regardless of your political ideology, right? So. You know, there's just a very small stretch of lands where you need some sort of the way to do things a different. 
and no fails, nobody is happy. And if it succeeds, you can look at these institutions and replicate them and apply them to you. That thing is an argument that, you know, everyone principal, um, could agree. You can also form, you can form a libertarian society, communist society, your, you know, all living kind of like, like again, so that could want commandment moral. And, and he's looking at that and it's like, it takes too long, too many years to convince governments to do that it requires a lot of history, local expertise, and, um, like it's just too much of kind of the waterfall model. And then he's kind of trying to make that model even smaller. So you can use the Silicon Valley Y Combinator model and send like a thousand really smart young people on that. Um, and then maybe three or four build something, something great about it. So he's just trying to increase the number of people working on kind of as an easy starting. Yeah. So I agree with that in principle. Um, and trust me when I say, I know the current model that we're presenting is hard. Uh, I live it every day. It is very hard. Um, but we're doing it because, uh, I think it's the only viable way to do it. And I agree in principle, like more people work in this space. I tell people this all the time, but like to reiterate, um, let's imagine for a second under a prospering, the company fails the front and then it failed. I just don't too. Let's imagine it does. Um, even if it fails, but as a result of our efforts, there are 50 similar projects that exist in the world that didn't succeed by the time I die. I will have considered my life a raging success, even if I am destitute as prospered much, right? I will consider that a massive success. I'm a firm believer, like I want as many people as humanly possible. The problem with the model is that, because we've tried this, we've experimented with this. It only works uh, at a certain scale. And when you get below that certain scale, um, the impact is too small, political negotiations too hard. Uh, and it just flat out, like in the real world, doing this day to day does not work. Um, we, part of what is appealing about our model, right, is that previous attempts at building new cities, especially economic zones, are really expensive. So, like, third example of this is Songdo, South Korea. It's a beautiful, massive new city that was built in 10 years to house over 100,000 people. It's about $35 billion. Right? It's a non-starter. You're not going to, there's maybe four companies on earth that could just spend $35 billion of capital to build something new and then know that the payoff horizon is 40 years. Right? Not many companies do that. So, I agree. What we're doing is trying to make that instead of 35 billion, 35 million, which is directly what we're doing. Right? It'll cost about $50 million at the end of the day to get to the kind of scale where you'll um, self reinforcing and the protesting. Um, but going below that becomes, as a matter of field practicality, completely infeasible. Um, and it doesn't have enough of an impact to continue to maintain alignment with their host nation that you need to work closely with. Um, because it's not worth it for them, right? Like the, the political actors and the reason they want to do this, the Honduran politicians that we work with, because they want their Honduras, right? Now, the political economy to this, where they can memory elections, of course, or whatever. But the main point really is like, people legitimately do want more prosperous uh, uh, in growing Honduras. Um, so we have to deliver on that promise. It's what we're working on each and every day. Um, but you have to deliver on it at scale, or it's just not worth it and it doesn't work. Yeah, I, and uh, I, I, I agree. Right, this one to steal man that position, but I also think you're having a big responsibility and good start from the beginning, from day one, thinking about starting from legitimacy and providing a path to increasing legitimacy and recognition, have not as something that's adversarial. That's why I think you know the tone of the book, even though it's sometimes you know enjoyable to read the critique about media, or whatever, it is just 
very adversarial and that can rally people, right? Um, I mean, uh, um, I was kind of thinking at some, some pessimism compared a bit to the communist manifesto. Right, because, you know, there's all these massive problems and it can inspire um, to see the urgency of what you're trying to do, but it can also lead to this overcorrection. Right? It can lead to this, you know, you're not building something with legitimacy built in. You are, um, you know, running experiments that could ultimately be dangerous. Yeah, exactly right. And this brings me to, I'm so glad you kind of segued into this, uh, because it brings me to the other key disagreement that I have with the logic, especially with my experience with Um, This idea that like the end goal or what you set out to do with the onset is, is nation building, right? Starting a new sovereign nation is not at all what we do, not vaguely what we're interested in. And exactly. I think for a lot of the reasons you just described these can be very dangerous. Um, and it is antithetical to the way the world works now. Um, and it's just kind of a non-starter for a whole bunch of political and cultural reasons, right? But that's why I think it's super important. And you can achieve like the same outcome he's driving at. The outcome he's driving at is innovation and governance and therefore more technological innovation and human prosperity. You achieve that by working hand in glove with existing nations, with existing jurisdictions um, to create things that they want and they desire, which is jobs, employment, opportunity, investment, innovation. Um, and still achieve those goals of innovation and governance and technological innovation and human prosperity in a way that is aligned with the existing nation states rather than antagonistic to them. That's just the total non-story. It's not what we're about. It's not what we do. We work with these people, right? And I recognize the good in me. Don't work against them in the way that Balaji described in this kind of very, very um, aggressive tone. That was another clarification I really wanted to make, which is that, yeah, this is just a foot in the middle disagreement we have as well. That is an endorsed art of hope you're only moving. Yes. Right, the worst developed by right? So, um, and again, that is fundamental, I think, fundamental important starting. I completely agree. It's just these type of projects are a non-starter if you're starting antagonistic like that, the starting aggressive like that. Um, and I just think it's even the wrong end goal. You can achieve the same outcomes by looking with the people that also want the same things you want. They just happen to be in existing institutions. Instead of starting what you get the the, uh, this, the strongest vehement disagreement with that idea that the in the, the initial goal or end goal is forming new nations. Not yeah, at all. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, there have been many the experiments and these forms of governance on like the islands with a you know with the population that's already there that is that went for about Yeah. Right. That where you know we're talking about where escapists and we're fundamentally how it's sort of making ideological dreams happening that have not of working organically with the people to um have an inclusive vision. I mean that's something that I from a friend of ours also wearing the press was always saying what we both be measured by at the end of the day is whether we're creating jobs. Yes, exactly. And, and, and higher paying better job. Exactly. Could not have uh, have said it better myself. That's exactly right. Um, and yeah, I think that's another kind of key point, uh, is working closely with local cultures and institutions as well. Um, and being non-ideological, and I don't mean this for like a political statecraft engineering sense. I mean this very explicitly from like, uh, it is counterintuitive to your own stated goals to be ideological, right? Because what that means is you're going to have a cognitive bias about what you might try to do. 
So you might miss out on a piece of public policy, let's say a law, regulation, whatever, and a system and administration that could create massive amounts of prosperity because it disagreed with your ideological idea. So I say this all the time that like Prospera is not at all an ideological organization. Uh, we just do what works. I wrote a rebuttal of this uh, MIT technology review Pete that wrote about us, which like, why was the MIT tech review writing about us? Couldn't tell, makes no sense to me. Um, but one of the claims they made was that we were some sort of like crypto libertarian destination or something like that was first of all, I literally don't know what crypto libertarian means, but in any case, um, so I wrote a rebuttal of this on our, on our medium blog and I was just pointing out like, not only are we not ideological, all you have to do is go skim policies and prosperity to understand that, right? We have a minimum wage that's 10% higher than the Honduran national average minimum wage. We have mandatory labor benefit fund contributions by employers that are either 10 or 25% of the um, compensation that we have to employees get. And employees can then use the labor benefit fund to pay for healthcare costs. Like social security, it, it pants, basically. It's a better way to do a social security type system. Uh, we have all sorts of things like that. A, a right to form unions, like your boss cannot stop you from forming unions. Many states in the U.S. don't even have it. Um, and that, those things are libertarian, right? And they're not because they work. That we, we, we implemented these policies that are non-ideological because we just do what works full time. Because our incentive is to do whatever will generate most jobs and most prosperity that this. And if that's a libertarian policy, if that's a socialist policy, if that's a progressive policy, a conservative policy, I don't care at all. If it works and you can demonstrate that it works so else in the world or through like a very logical process grounded in reality and being an empirical data and literature if possible, then we'll do it. Irrespective of what ideology that policy might be. Yeah, and that's also the reason, you know, the reason why I what attracted me to Prospera, you know, the idea behind it's great, but I didn't come for the ideology. I that was kind of an initial start. Hey, we could do things different here, but what made me really stay is community, right? That there were people that are working together on something that the vision of Prospera is inclusive, right? So it's involving people from the country, from the island, and basically it's homegrown, set up by people from the dirt, right? And this is kind of co-developed in one sense. That's exactly right. Everything is majority Honduran, like the technical secretary, which is like the mayor of the Prospera's NA, if you will. So it'd be for from the hours where he and a brilliant doing oh, yeah. attorney. Um, we, this is one of the most impressive. Amazing. Most of our staff are Honduran uh, people, born and raised in Honduras, um, who see a brighter future for Honduras and work and want to work with us to do so. Um, again, literally all uh, of the people that work in the jurisdiction that have those remote work jobs there and that nice work for them, just got jobs with other companies that are uh, cropping up in jurisdiction or working remotely. Honduran. Um, and that because this project is about creating prosperity for Hondurans uh, and catalyzing innovation in Honduras, it benefits the rest of the world in Latin America as well, but Hondurans first and foremost. Right. The other part of the, do you want to talk about? Um, yeah, the only other thing I would say is like, I think um, one other thing I want to praise us in, in closing, though, in our positive note, um, some of the ideas he puts forward are the ways that you could potentially govern these cloud nations. Uh, one of these network states with uh, a bunch of on-chain crypto governance protocols, um, unique smart contracts are super cool. I really want someone to try them um, in a, a, a safe, kind of proactive way. Um, and I want to see how they work because I think the idea that you can move a lot of these governance decisions and institutions and voting mechanisms, for example, on-chain, like for just to take one tiny example that I can't remember if you mentioned in the book or not, is 
um, Glenn Weil and Billy Duterham talked about quadratic which is this mechanism that could drastically improve the efficacy of democratic processes to result in better public policy. But you can institute that almost trivially easily with smart contracts. Uh, so I really love the section he has on like, ways, like a kind of more innovative brainstorming ways that you can improve governance on chain are beautiful. And I can't wait to see some people do them real life. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a very good notes to end on. Like, uh, again, I can't stress enough. Um, if you think this sounds too good or you're skeptical, you know, or you're like, hey, um, you know, I disagree with many of the things you said, and I think you should do things differently. That's what it's there for. Come here, come to debate this with us, come to see for yourself whether you believe, you know, that one story in Guardian or you believe our story comes for yourself, right? There's nothing that's anywhere hidden. You can pretty move around to anyone, only profits drop from anywhere. Um, you know, the people that are working for Prosper, the people that are outside of Prosper on the island, like, um, come see for yourself. I invite you to, to join us um, to one of the conferences, hopefully. Please, yes, I would love to see all the listeners of this podcast there. The more, the more, the merrier. I love. Uh, I found the um, people that are like you in this network are all very like-minded, and I've met some of the most amazing, talented, brilliant people as a result of this. So, please, everyone, come to come to all three of the Build Prospera summits this uh, the major of the year. Yep, I'm here, and let's build. Let's build. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.